It's been nearly 30 years since I've thought about Camp Hero. Chills run down my spine at the thought of it. It was summer in the 1980s on the eastern tip of Long Island. Montauk, to be exact. I rode my bike into town with friends for pizza and shopping at the local mom-and-pop shops. My favorite was the magic shop. Downtown was the best. You could hear the warm echoes of laughter and bells on kids' bikes riding through the alleyways, eventually leading to shortcuts to the shore. The sounds of ocean waves crashing into the sand from a distance always reminded me that I was home. It was a place where you looked forward to the sound of your mother's voice calling you in as the streetlights illuminated the chalky pavement. You weren't in trouble, you just knew a home-cooked meal was waiting for you with movies and dessert to follow. But in just one day, my warm feelings of home turned into a constant need to look over my shoulder. I was strolling through the park while walking my bike as it's hard to ride on the soft grass. I went across from the shops before heading on to the beach with the rest of the crew. I wanted to see if the ducks were wandering about. That's when something caught my eye. It was a missing persons flyer taped to a telephone pole. I walked up to it, and the closer I got, the more it bothered me. It was a young boy. We'll call him Johnny. I discreetly tore the phone number tab off the flyer in case it wasn't Johnny's family that made it. It seemed too professional, like some business person made it, instead of a worried family. I was weary about this flyer. Specific memories bounced into my head as soon as I saw them. I was scared the police would somehow be involved. The police force out here works very closely with the government basis. I did not want to take any chances in case my gut was right. What scared me the most was that I recognized this boy. He was roughly two years younger than I was, and I knew he was alive. I've seen him before. A few days prior, I went for an evening drive with my dad to see the lighthouse near Camp Hero. As we were driving back home, a few miles down the main road, I noticed a young boy running, clumsily, as fast as he could through the woods. He looked as though he was hiding and scared something was following him. I only saw him for a moment, but I noticed him continuously looking back over his shoulder, almost falling to the ground every time. It was one of those things that you see now and think, hmm, that was weird, probably a manhunt going on. As you shrug your shoulders and don't think about it, in his case, it wasn't a game. It was very real. As soon as I saw that flyer, I knew something was very wrong. A bad feeling took over me, while a voice inside my head started echoing through my skull, pleading with me not to call the police. I rode back to the shops where the rest of the guys were hanging out and told them I had to go. They seemed confused because we had just gotten there 20 minutes prior. I made up an excuse like, I forgot I promised to help my parents with the artwork while they're gone, or something of that nature. The only thing was, I wasn't heading home. Something was pulling me to ride across town towards the woods where I saw Johnny. I came across a small clearing off the road, which led to what looked like a trailhead. I rested my bike against the mossy-coated split-rail fence and walked through the surrounding brush, with thorns piercing my skin, rocks sneaking into the soles of my converse, and twigs trying to restrain me. I kept going. I walked and stumbled through the edge of the silent woods until I could see at least a half mile before me. Roughly an hour into my escapade, I came across a makeshift shelter. It was well camouflaged, making me think, this kid is smart. He didn't use any clothes for the top. 
It was made of branches and covered with wet, dead leaves left over from winter. It was shielded with parts of bushes and pine needles. I pulled my old-timer Barlow knife out from my jean pocket, just in case I pissed off some angry hunter by accident. I had some noisemakers I brought from the magic shop along with my knife. I threw one in a few feet from the shelter, trying to draw whoever was in there out. After the first snap, I heard a sound that reminded me of a jump, like if I scared someone or something. After a minute or two, I threw three more in the same spot, and that's when I saw him. A small, poorly buzzed head emerged. It was riddled with dirt, dried up blood, and pieces of dead leaves. It was the young boy from the photo. His hairstyle was more of a bowl cut on the flyer, but I noticed a birthmark under his eye that made me sure. The same face, same birthmark, same build. A bit more malnourished, but still the same. And he was the right age. He looked at me. It was as though he had felt I was there to kill him. His already pale face became transparent. He turned to run but tripped and caught his foot in some thick roots sticking out of the ground. I rushed toward him and calmly said, Here, let me help you. He looked so scared and confused that he even began to cry. I showed him my knife, slowly raising both hands to convey that I meant no harm, and said I would not hurt him. I just really wanted to help him. He seemed to understand and exhibited signs that he wanted to trust me. He might have realized that we were around the same age. I took a few steps closer, moving slowly and calmly. Once I got to where I was practically standing over him, I noticed he was wearing bizarre uniformed clothing. It was torn on the right upper side. His arm and his ribs seemed to be cut. Whatever cut on his clothes broke through his skin, and he was still bleeding a fair bit. The uniform was nothing like what your average blue-collared private school would be, but closer to what you'd expect to be worn at a concentration camp. I did not stop to ask too many questions. It just made me want to get out of there even faster. I cut him free from the thick root his foot was caught in and tried to calm him down. I tried to talk to him as gently as possible, and with the adrenaline running through me, that was truly a challenge. My name is Paul. I'm almost 12 years old, and I don't mean you any harm. Are you okay? I asked. Tears filled his puffy, bruised-up eyes, and he fell into my arms. I was a little shocked that he was able to feel comforted by me after seeing how terrified he was. I've never seen anyone so scared. It was scary to watch and made my stomach turn. What could have possibly happened to him, especially out here? I've always felt so safe here in Montauk. It's my home and where I was born. Nothing much worse than a natural death or someone's cat getting stuck in a tree happens around here. You hear about someone getting bullied, but it's always just one asshole just trying to look cool. I waited about five minutes, letting him cry on my soaked shoulder. He was so little for a nine and a half year old. He was so fragile. I felt like if I even hugged him back, or just gave him a few pats on the back, he would bruise or break. They did not seem to care much about feeding him wherever he was. Making eye contact, I pulled away slowly. I asked him for his name. Johnny, he cackled. His voice was broken as if he had spent an entire day screaming at the top of his lungs. I replied, Johnny, can I help you? I know a safe place you can stay. Will you trust me? I can tell you've been through something horrible, and I haven't told anyone I was headed here. I just want to understand what is going on. Johnny nodded nervously as he trembled, but he seemed desperate for something good to happen to him. Should I call the police? I asked nervously. No. Johnny yelped with fear in his raspy voice. They were there too, he added. 
My assumptions were correct, which made me feel better about my actions. The police in Montauk are voted in the force by the most affluent locals in the area. They're welcomed with open arms if they have a family at the party. It's hard to know whom you can trust in a situation like this. Johnny confirming my concerns made me even more terrified of what would come of this. I showed him that I had pegs on my bike so he could hop on, so I could get him out of there. Fleetly turned back to the shelter, scraping his knee as he stumbled against the brush and he grabbed a small, wrinkled, slightly torn piece of paper, carefully folding it before tucking it deep inside of his shirt pocket. He hopped on the pegs, fidgeting for a few seconds trying to figure out how to get his balance. He grabbed on for dear life as he cried out, Go quickly, please! I rode away as fast as I could. It took a few minutes for my legs to keep up with the ride flow with the extra weight. He sunk his face into my shoulder as you would if you were trying to hide right in plain sight, not wanting anyone to see your face. I felt like we were flying through the hills of Montauk. My hair is flying crazily in the wind as I lose my stomach with every dip, perfectly steep enough to stay in control and give you a head start for your next incline. I love riding on these roads. I knew every bike trail off of it, disappearing into the trees and bushes with a path guiding my way to another street or neighborhood. I was pedaling so fast while trying to stay safe and secure on the terrain, but I used these hidden pathways every day. I was heading home. Back at my house, we have a nice amount of land. First, you would see a gravel driveway lined with beautiful boulders and flowers. A dark chocolate-colored birdhouse-shaped wooden-stained mailbox stood in a bed of roses at the end of the driveway. Our front yard was filled with dogwood, pine, and old oak trees. My house was a two-story high ranch with a broad, wraparound, screened-in porch. It was brown, with black accents lined with my mom's beautiful garden with large plants and bushes. It was a house that was difficult to see from the street. My parents were always very cool and had excellent taste. Our house was surrounded by trees on several acres of woods and private trails I made with my dad. Deep through the backyard is a fort I also made with my dad. The home was my safe place with my little hideaway. My parents don't bother me too much as I don't give them a hard time and always get my chores done. They especially don't care to go into my fort. They think it's good for kids to have their private spot to think and reflect. They believe it helps me grow and become independent. I thought it was a perfect place to let Johnny recover. It was insulated and warm with lots of blankets and all the books and comics you could read. A couple of board games, jacks, and yo-yos. There was even an old icebox my dad gave me for cutting the grass. I could put food in it for him, until I know if it's safe for my parents to get involved. I pondered. When I first saw Johnny the night I was driving with my dad, I also remembered seeing armored trucks, unmarked vans, and holy black cars. They're constantly going in and out of Camp Hero as well. Not to mention the stiff, mean-looking armed guards at the gate. Something told me the moment I saw the flyer that there could be a connection, and a bad one. In the past, my dad told me different stories about how they were here to protect this part of the East Coast from possible German U-boats invading. He didn't seem interested in giving me more details. My dad likes to pay attention to my curious face so he can teach me something. But when it came to Camp Hero, he almost looked like he was hoping I could care less to ask more about it. I paid attention to that and respected his secrets, if he had any. My dad works on the underground pipelines, so I'm sure he's seen a thing or two that he would rather not remember. I felt euphoric when my bald tires and exhausted legs hit the gravel driveway. 
Mom and Dad are helping Graham with redecorating since she hurt her hip, so I could go right straight for the fort. I let Johnny make himself comfortable as I went into the house to grab some essentials. Leftover meatloaf, Twinkies, soda, chips, cookies, and milk. I threw some first aid supplies in there, shorts and a t-shirt into a bag with everything else that we would need, and ran back. Once he settled in, we started to talk. He trusted me and was excited about my hideaway. I happily showed him everything we could use to pass the time. After a few minutes, I asked, Johnny, can you help me understand what happened to you? What's with this uniform? How did you cut your ribs? And who are you running from? He put his head down and took a deep breath, and he told me everything he could remember. It all started at one of my favorite places, right downtown. Four men grabbed him outside the motel he had been staying at with his mother when she went grocery shopping. They were there on vacation, and no one in town saw a thing, apparently. He said they threw him into a van, tied him up and blindfolded him. When the van stopped, they dragged him out and walked on. What he says felt like a gravel road that eventually turned into pavement. They entered through a cold, dark, and deep concrete tunnel. He could tell it was tunnel-like due to the feeling of dampness mixed with echoing sounds. He said they still had him blindfolded, but when they dragged him into the van, he could see it was still light out. He saw the ground and noticed the men carrying him were wearing heavy-duty boots. Johnny was eventually stopped, frisked, and thrown into a room where he was stripped naked and abruptly hosed off with what he described as a fire hose. He said they painfully shaved his head and made him put brownish-green jumpsuits on, with only three pockets, a fixed hole on each inner elbow, and a number on the upper left side of the chest. His number read, 0413. He said he thinks it was their way of identifying them all. There were at least a hundred kids in this tunnel. There was some sort of underground fortress going on. Johnny said the fixed holes on the suit were for needles and IVs. They pumped them with all sorts of drugs. Sometimes they would switch the kids from one tunnel to another. That's when he saw the most horrific thing he never thought he would have to see in his lifetime. Not even in his imagination. Inside the East Tunnel, they had the most advanced technology. Johnny said it looked like they could have been weapons, but not like anything he's ever seen in the papers or any sort of Soldier of Fortune magazine. He said his grandpa was in World War I and was convinced that alien technology was accurate and that we were at risk as a country for corruption. He tells me he was forced to stand on one side of a two-way mirror with a group of other boys to witness to what could happen if they, uh, misbehaved. On the other side were two rooms separated by a wall and a door with a padlock on one side. In one room resided a strange creature pacing back and forth. In the other room was a boy, eleven and a half years old, roughly my age, sitting on a chair with straps securing him, and a creature was put in front of him. He went on and was trying to describe the beast without calling it, well, an alien. In reality, I think that's exactly what it was. It was skinny, in dark gray, slimy looking skin. It had long fingers that had strange shapes on the tips. They looked like suction cups but were part of its hands. Its hands were wrong. As though the suction cups could pull the muscles right out of your skin. Its head was large and extended with a round lump on the back of it. 
Its eyes were dark and glassy like a black hole bending light. Johnny described it as if it could stare right through your soul. They would call them the Greys, said Johnny as he started to whimper. He continued, They tortured this kid. They had that strange machine simulate his worst fears. He got so scared he even peed his pants. That's when the creature walked in. I gulped, sweating and scared of this terrifying story even more so if it was true. He said that it had a bucket and forced the kid's head in. He was drowned and eventually started twitching slowly and intermittently. That is when the creature pulled him out, right before he was completely dead. I was confused and wanted to ask questions but decided to let him finish. It pulled a long pointy straw-like object out of its arm, like it was a part of it somehow. Then the creature stabbed the poor kid with an unknown mechanism and started sucking out something from his face. The creature reacted as if it were sucking out a drug or something. One of the boys watching with me cried and whimpered loudly. The creature heard him and quickly shifted, looking at us. It walked up to the two-way mirror and pointed right at him. Johnny started crying, and I let him. When he calmed down, I assured him he was safe and decided to change the subject for a while. We talked a bit about myself, my friends, and anything to try and make him smile. I told him about the flyer in town. He was relieved to know his mom was okay. That's when he pulled out this piece of paper that he had tucked into his pocket earlier. It was an old photo of his mom. Johnny said that his father passed away a few years ago. His mom would continue bringing him to Montauk every summer since he passed. It was a family tradition, explained Johnny. I reached into the back pocket of my jeans and pulled out the number I tore from the flyer. Is this a phone number you recognize? I asked. Johnny looked at it closely, and I could tell he recognized it. I do, I just don't remember where. Maybe it's the phone number from the motel room you were staying at. Maybe your mom is still in town. I can't imagine why she would leave if you were missing. A light twinkled in his eye. It was hope. I explained that we couldn't call this number until we knew it was not a trap. He agreed and trusted my decision. I gave him a pat on the back and told him to try and sleep. We'll get you back to your mom. I promise, I said. I showed him where the window to my bedroom was in case of an emergency, and he felt safe. I gave him one of my old lanterns so he could read and went up to the house. Slowly I walked up to the back door of my house while going over everything he had told me. I was still shaking from the day's adrenaline and too scared to say to my parents. They didn't ask any questions about my day and if I had bought anything down by the shops. It was nice. I bought some noisemakers and cards. Nothing crazy. How's Graham? Everything goes smoothly. No more broken bones? I chuckled, trying to turn the focus of the conversation to them. Oh, you know your Graham. She'd trip over a broom before trying to walk around it if she meant she had to take fewer steps. Laughed my dad as my mother added. Yes, Paul. Everything went well. She even made martinis. She cracks me up, always turning things into a party. They continued their laughter and were satisfied with my answers. I asked to be excused and they let me go do my own thing after dinner. It felt so weird leaving them out of this, but I needed time to grasp at what just happened and why today of all days I felt like being a hero. I'm the type of person that avoids conflicts if I can. Why did I feel like I needed to do what I did? The following day I woke up with a clear head. I ran to grab breakfast my mom had laid on the kitchen table. I stuffed my pockets, mouth, and hands with food mumbling. Thanks ma, love you, as I bolted into the backyard. Johnny was asleep with every comic book around him. I chuckled a bit, and he jumped. Sorry, I didn't mean to scare you. 
I'm glad to see you enjoyed the comics, I said laughing. Johnny smiled and welcomed me in, especially when he saw all the food. We got to talking again, and I asked him if he was comfortable with me talking to my dad about him. I promise you, once he hears how involved this is, he will do the right thing. He will do what we can to bring you back to your mom without anyone knowing. My pop knows every shortcut and back road around here. We can make this work, I assured him. He was hesitant to agree, but eventually said, Okay, I trust you, but I'm terrified, Paul. I cannot go back there. It was horrible. They will kill me. I was scared too, but my gut told me this was the right thing to do. Johnny, can you give me that paper I gave you with the phone number? I will have my dad look it up on the white pages and see if it's a business. It will give us a place to start. Johnny agreed and put his trust in me to do the right thing. I was determined to reunite him with his mother and keep him safe. I headed inside and talked alone with my dad in the garage. Hey dad, I stuttered. I think I have some explaining to do. As I fiddled with my wrist and kicked at the ground with hesitation, What's on your mind, Paul? He asked in a concerning tone. Remember the other night, we took a drive to the lighthouse? I reminded him as he put his head down, implying he was worried about where this conversation was heading. What is it, Dad? I asked concerned. If you're going to mention something about that boy, I saw him that night too. I was confused why he never said anything. What do you know about him? Dad asked sternly, but he wasn't mad. It seemed more like he was worried about my well-being. I want, I want you to trust me, Dad. I've never lied to you or Mom about anything, and I always know I can come to you about things. I want you to know before I tell you what I've done. He crossed his arms and bucked his chin up as to... He crossed his arms and bucked his chin up as he took a deep, slow breath but looked nervously intrigued. You can tell me anything, son. You come to me honestly, proving that we can trust you even more. You're a good boy and we believe in you. Please go on, Paul. I won't be mad. We may talk afterward, but it all depends on what you're holding back. I was so relieved for him to say this to me. Warmth and trust ran through me. I saw something in town yesterday. It was a flyer for a missing boy two years younger than me. Dad, he's only nine, and I went back to where we saw him, Pop. I looked down, waiting for him to be upset, but he was calm. He had a look on his face that was hard to describe. It was as though he was brainstorming or something. I finished telling him about my terrifying adventure, assuring him that I was careful and did everything he taught me about safety in the outdoors. He smiled and said, I didn't want to act on anything that night because you were with me. You must understand that as a father, my child comes first. It's my responsibility to keep you safe. I am not upset, Paul. I am proud of you. Come on, go get him, and we'll take a ride. I threw the biggest tug at him as he almost fell backward. I stumbled as I quickly turned and ran off to the fort. I told Johnny the excellent news. He shoveled whatever food was left in his mouth as fast as possible. He looked like a squirrel stocking up for winter. He grabbed his belongings, including the scary uniform. I gave him some comics and wrote my phone number on one of the middle pages to surprise him in the future. We ran to the garage, where my dad was waiting for us. As soon as Johnny saw him, he promptly fixed his posture, standing perfectly straight. He tightened his legs together, pointed his shoes, and straightened out his arm like a soldier waiting for a handshake. My dad went along with it, embracing his obvious trauma, and gave him a firm handshake. Johnny smiled, and we hopped into the Bronco. Dad heard from some of his friends in town that a frantic woman was looking for her son. She was still at the same motel, but the phone number on the flyer was different. My dad noticed and decided to drive by to be safe. 
We saw the unmarked van and those weird all-black cars parked in the lot. Men dressed in black suits, sunglasses, and straight faces were talking to the office manager. Johnny's mom was nowhere in sight. My dad did not slow down. They didn't seem to see us, at least I didn't think they did. My dad drove to the road ramp leading to the beach. He threw the truck into four-wheel drive and we started riding onto the beach. Stay down, Johnny, just in case we are seen. Johnny did precisely what he was told, laying on the floor, staying out of sight throughout the bumpy sliding sand. Dad drove in the direction of the motel. The beach drive runs parallel to the main road, so we knew where we were. Eventually, we saw a woman sitting on the sand holding an old dirty pair of shoes. It was a pair of boys' shoes and the laces were tied together. Her head was on her knees as she cried. Dad opened the creaky driver's door. She jumped as she heard him. He ducked, showing submission as she was already on guard. He slowly walked up to her and said, Excuse me, ma'am. She lifted her head a bit more to get a closer look at him and shifted towards me. Her mouth began to quiver as she shook, tears drowning her face, with makeup down her chin. Are you okay? Pop asked. Some strange men just told me. My son was found dead. They said his they said his body washed up on the shore of Plum Island, and he must have drowned. He's a strong swimmer. He knows to stay close and always be careful of rip currents. It just doesn't make any sense. He would never venture out without telling anybody. He's been missing for six weeks, and all my posters from him disappeared until I saw one yesterday. It was different, though, and I don't understand what happened to my boy. She cried a bit more, followed by some deep breaths. My dad let her breathe and waited for her to finish. The men that arrived this morning at the hotel seemed so strange. They wouldn't answer any of my questions and did not seem to care. I came here to be alone and to try to make sense of what's happened to my son. She started crying again, and my dad couldn't stand to see a woman cry. He knelt next to her, putting his hand on her shoulder. He whispered to her, Your boy isn't dead, ma'am. I think I have your Johnny, but you must be quiet and slowly walk to my truck. She did exactly what he said. She held her composure very well when she saw her son for the first time in six weeks. Suddenly we heard a commotion at the hotel behind the dunes where we were parked. Pop looked out to the water and noticed a boat standing with men using binoculars watching us. Come on, let's go, Johnny, stay down. He peeled through the soft sand as fast as we could. Johnny never peeked up, even when his mom got in the truck. He knew if he was caught, now his mother would be in danger. They were an intelligent pair. Johnny and his mom. You could tell they took good care of each other just by seeing how smart they handled the situation. Once my dad made it back to the road, he cut through an off-road trail leading to a back road. Eventually, we made it far enough. He stuck to every back road he could take. It made the trip a bit longer, but worth it in the end. We made it all the way out to Wading River without being followed once. I guess the radio transmission from the boat to the men at the motel didn't get to them fast enough to see which direction we were headed. Plus, my dad's driving tops any men in black. My dad had one of his work trucks at an old parking lot near the bait shop. He was friends with the owner who lets him keep it there for when my dad worked in the marsh. He gave Johnny's mom the keys and told her to follow him. We drove west until we saw signs for the Port Jefferson Ferry. When we arrived, my dad told her to wait in the truck. He went to the office and bought tickets, one for us and one for Johnny and his mom. Dad explained to her that we were all going to take the ferry and handed her two maps. Johnny and his mom were from Delaware, but it seemed like they were ready to move very far away. One map was a Bridgeport with a map of Connecticut attached to it. 
The other map was of the United States and was more like a book. It was the reason they were able to get away, far away. She hugged my dad and kissed me on the cheek. I wiped it off and went to shake Johnny's hand. He laughed and forced the most powerful hug on me. They thanked us up and down and were prepared for the ferry trip. My dad parked behind them and followed them outside Bridgeport until he felt they were safe. The last I remember, there were taillights of my dad's old work truck driving away. He turned to me and said, Your mother would be so proud, and I admire you, Paul. What you did was so brave and selfless. You've inspired me. My dad always assured me of my actions, and when it was for something good, he made me feel like the man I try so hard to be. A couple of years after saving Johnny's life, the camp finally closed. Boards went up on every building. The tunnels now have six feet of cement sealing them shut. I wander in there from time to time, when it's open to the public. It's sick that they would even make it a public park, I know. But it's like you can feel everything that happened there. I get nauseous every time I go, but still I venture there to remind myself that what happened was real. Sometimes I hear distant echoes of screaming children. It makes me think that the men who kidnapped Johnny are still here somehow. Maybe underground. Who knows? But I think something very sinister is still happening here. The air is thick with mystery and horror. I'm so thankful nothing happened to my family, but we did what we had to do. I received a phone call about five years after the great escape. It was Johnny. Hearing his voice brought all my memories back to that action-packed day. He told me he saw the phone number I wrote down for him in that comic book a couple years ago. He seemed well, safe, and happy. It was the most exciting phone call I had, but I never ever heard from him again. It was so lucid. Every unanswered question I had that day immediately invaded my curious brain. I didn't want him to have to relive such a terrifying time, so I kept my questions to myself. Now I wish I hadn't. Recently I received a letter without a return mail address. The handwriting was scratchy as though it was written on a brick wall or a cement floor. It made me quiver, shaking with goosebumps breaking through my skin. As I held it, all it read was, Thank you for giving me 15 happy years with my mom. She died last year from cancer. They found me, Paul. They must have been waiting for her name and family information for years. Goddamn obituaries. Two weeks after she died, they showed up. I was trying to pack up and move to California, but they got to me. Last I remember, I was packing in West Virginia. Now I'm in some hellhole different from the last. I'm writing this letter in my cell. I will throw it out of the window when they transport me again, hoping someone will find it and mail it. It's so dark and much worse than before. I will, I will write to you again if I can. I'll try harder to find landmarks or descriptions of my whereabouts. I hope you get this. I searched Camp Hero's grounds to find evidence that he could be back there. I was at a loss for words with an empty stomach in my... I was at a loss for words with an empty feeling in my chest. My dad is old and doesn't remember much nowadays, but he cried when I told him about the note. He remembered Johnny and his mom. Yes, it was a sad ending to a scary adventure, but sometimes, what we expect to have a happy ending doesn't always turn out the way we intend. I will always continue to research unmarked purchased land and look for Johnny, but something tells me I won't find him. I have a police scanner and multiple radios waiting for any information that could lead to him. I was lucky to receive the letter because the address was wrong. It went to my neighbor's house down the road. Luckily, they have known me for years and were happy to give it to me. After reading it, I knocked on their door and asked them to please keep a close eye on another one. I said, 
This letter was from an old friend and he may be in trouble. He had a crazy ex-girlfriend that stole his life savings before she left him, and I would like to be able to help him if I can. I made up this bogus story to protect him. No need to spread rumors about the government to this kind of innocent people. Every day, I wait for a sign, message, or letter. Anything that can help me find him.